Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Well, everyone, welcome back to a very exciting episode of the Storybox podcast. Today, my friends, I'm delighted to welcome Robin Steinberg to the Storybox. Now, for those of you that don't know who she is, she is the founder and CEO of the Bail Project. Now, I'm going to stop there because I do something uh, very new and very uh, interesting uh, nowadays on the show is that I'm going to now pass it along to Robin and ask her in her own words who she is and what she does, aside from me having to sing her praises. I'm going to let her do it for you all. (laughs) So Robin, please take it away. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, So I'm Robin Steinberg. I am uh, a lawyer, a public defender. I am the founder of um, several organizations, including the Bail Project, most recently, Still She Rises in Oklahoma, and the Bronx Defenders in New York City, which is a public defender office, where we represented about 30,000 low-income people every year in Bronx, New York. Um, I consider myself to be a social justice um, activist and somebody who cares deeply in justice and equality and equity. And I am most recently an author who wrote my first book called The Courage of Compassion, uh, A Journey from Judgment to Conviction. And it really is based on my 40 years working in the criminal justice system in those various capacities as both a public defender defending people in the criminal justice system, one client at a time, and as somebody who has built organizations. I've done trainings for public defenders. Um, and most recently, the Bail Project, we've really tried to think about how do we end America's cash bail system and attack mass incarceration at the front end of the system. So it's been a fabulous journey, and I'm happy to be here to chat with you. Well, Robin, thank you so much, and welcome so much to the Storybox podcast today. It's an honor to have you. Thanks so much. I have so many questions, and I guess so little time to actually ask you them all. <laughs> I mean, you've got 40 years of experience to uncover and I guess it's it's great that you wrote a book. And I know that 40 years condensed into 200 something pages is probably not enough really. But I wanted to ask you, what is social justice and what is this whole idea of equality and equity in society today? 
So I have done work around that issue, obviously, through the lens of the criminal justice system. And I believe very much that um, America's criminal justice system is a reflection on all of us. Um, it reflects the values that we hold or the values that we say we hold. Um, and then it reflects the realities of our systems. And um, I have worked very hard during my career, both to represent people who are in the criminal justice system, who need representation, um, who come from marginalized and historically disenfranchised communities, uh, particularly and specifically the impacts of the criminal justice system are felt most heavily on black communities and brown and low income communities across America. Um, so when I think about doing social justice, social justice is a very big title for really making the world more equal, making the world more fair, making the world more humane, and yes, making it more compassionate. Uh, social justice in the context of our country, I think, also specifically means really also taking on the issue of racial justice and our history of racial injustice in America and the ways that that has played itself out in our criminal justice system and other systems across America. Um, so I'm obviously joined by lots and lots of people who work on social justice and racial justice issues, but my focus has been inside the criminal justice system. I've always been fascinated by this whole idea of, you know, having equal outcomes for everyone because we've got two sides to every equation. Is that is that fair to say? Well, I think what the promise of America's legal system is supposed to be is that we provide equal justice to everybody. So what that looks like is very individualized, right? Somebody comes in, they're charged with a crime. They may be guilty. They may be not guilty. Even if they are guilty, there's the question of how does the system arrive at what justice would look like? Um, and so no two people are going to wind up with their cases looking exactly the same because nobody's exactly the same, right? Everybody comes in unique individuals with their own stories, their own experiences, what led them to that moment and their own futures at hand. But what we do promise people in America is that they will be provided equal justice under the law. Unfortunately, the criminal justice system sort of turns that on its head. And what we see instead is a two-tier system of justice, one for people with money and one for people without, one for people who are white and one for people who are from communities of color. And those distinctions are really stark and obvious and obviously um, don't fulfill what I think is the promise of our system, which is that everybody should be provided equal justice regardless of race or class. So how do we create a more sort of broader society that actually is happy with this equal playing field of real justice for both sides and not one person going away feeling like there's been injustice had to them? Because I mean, the likelihood of that happening nowadays is really, really high compared to, I mean, slim, I guess you could say, because there's a lot of injustice happening in society at the moment. And there's a lot of, I guess, justice at the same time, but the whole uh, whole line of innocent until proven guilty kind of thing. But even still, people will be people and they'll kind of feel like there's still injustice going on in that mm -hmm. respect, even though a person may be proved innocent. So. How do we navigate that, those waters, you think? <laughs> well, that's a big question and certainly a question that has plagued my career for 40 years, right? So as I thought about how do I work within these systems and sometimes from without these systems um, to change them, to make them more fair, um, to make them more to live up to their promise. And, you know, I think that there is incredible work that's going on. I think um, I've been involved in work with colleagues and, and grassroots organizers and people who run other not-for-profits and public defenders my whole career who are doing incredible work. And it's going to take so many strategies, right? It's going to take 
poetry and music and lawsuits and advocacy and organizing, right? And lifting up the voices of people who've been impacted by the system. It's going to take all of those strategies. But as I began to sort of peel away at the 40 years of looking back over my career, I couldn't help but constantly run up against, I don't understand if we can look at our criminal justice system as most Americans can and agree that it is not working effectively. It's not functioning well. It is not creating justice. It in fact is creating injustice. What's getting in our way? And at the end, what I really, the conclusion I think I came to, which sounds really simple, but it's really deeply complex, I think, is that yes, we can change policies and laws and practice, and we must do that at every stage of our criminal justice system. But at the end of the day, we're gonna run the risk of recreating the same harms over and over again in a new form if we don't do the harder transformational work of really doing the inner work of transforming ourselves. And what I mean by that is really replacing judgment and punishment with curiosity and compassion. And when I think about that, I think about that not just in the criminal justice system, but one of the things I thought about as I was writing this book was my approaches to the criminal justice system because it's the most extreme example of how we treat each other and we dehumanize each other and we label each other and we demonize each other and we cancel each other. We do that in the criminal justice system at its most extreme, but we do it every day. We do it on social media. We do it on TV. We do it across the dining room table when we disagree with somebody. And so I was really trying to use the opportunity of writing this book to sort of raise the issue of what is it? Why have we lost our connection to each other? And how can we begin to change that and shift our paradigm away from wagging fingers and judgment and punishment to connection and compassion and repair and restoration. And that's really what I arrived at, which was as much a surprise for me as anybody that knows me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After 40 years of working in the system, at the end of the day, I realized wow, at the end of the day, this is about our internal lives, about compassion and love as a incredibly strong, powerful and effective political force for good. And that we need to tap into that more often. I mean, you've got 40 years of experience dealing with a vast majority of ideas, people. At the end of the day, we are humans. But for whatever reason, in today's society, there's a massive divide between people. And there's all these ideologies. You're right. There's a bunch of labels being thrown out. There's a great deal of hate being pushed on both fronts, uh, as sad as that is to actually say. And even though I mean, I am probably like the least hateful person on the face of the earth. I hate it. I try and stamp it out. And I do that through trying to bring awareness to people's stories and saying like, this is the reality of life. And sometimes life can be unfair and unfortunate and it can be really, really unjust for people. But also at the same time, I mean, you're in the, you're a public defender. You're dealing with uh, many, many different levels of ideas, people, all that sort of stuff. Like I said, just a moment ago, how do you combat or confront, because you're only one person, how do you confront if there's a level of corruption in positions of power that make the final decision for you? So, you know, it's a daily confrontation in the criminal justice system to stand up to injustice and to call it out for what it is. Um, But it also is about trying to work with 
people in the system who are systems players who might be on the other side, your quote unquote adversaries, and trying to find some common ground to have these conversations, right? To try to find some common ground to basically say, look, putting somebody, you know, in a box, in a cage and canceling them out of existence by putting them in jail forever, right? Doesn't solve fundamentally the problem that we're trying to address, right? And likewise, putting somebody on a pedestal and pretending that they're perfect and they have no flaws is the other extreme, which also doesn't really honor our humanity. We're all incredibly complex human beings. None of us are all good. None of us are all bad, Right. I challenge people all the time, right, to think about the worst, most shameful thing you've ever done in your life. Don't talk about it out loud, but remember what it is. And now ask yourself, do you want to walk into a room and have me introduce you by that act and define you by the worst thing you've ever done, which ignores the entire experience that came before that moment and the possibility for a future and redemption moving forward. And everybody goes, no, well, that wouldn't be fair. But that's exactly what we do to each other. It's what we do in the criminal justice system at its most extreme. And it's what we do outside the criminal justice system every day. We have to be able to recognize that all of us are complex. All of us have flaws. None of us should be defined by the worst thing we've ever done. And that the only way we're going to move justice forward is right to really understand the connections we have to each other and to see everybody in ourselves. If I can see you and myself and I can see your children and my children, we have a connection Mm -hmm. and we have a more of an understanding. And with that, I think we can lead to a better world and more, you know, more just outcomes. Do you see uh, cancel culture in the criminal justice system? I think the criminal justice system is cancel culture. I think I think it is actually the precursor to cancel culture. We literally take people and cancel them out of existence. First, we label them. We call them robbers or felons or offenders, and we don't use human language. Then we put them into a courtroom and don't even talk about them as humans or engage with them as humans. And then we put them off into jails and prisons across America where they sit in violent, traumatic jail cells day in and day out until their sentence is over and they're released. So we, at its extreme in the criminal justice system, cancel people out of sight, out of mind. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's the, the analogy is very, very clear. And while it may not be as extreme outside of our criminal justice system, it can get pretty extreme. Um, You know, when we don't provide a way for people to come back, even when they've caused harm, when we don't think about how the person to whom harm was done, what they might need, how they might need restoration and repair. And that doesn't mean necessarily that you just cancel people away. Sometimes that means having a conversation. Sometimes that means finding a way to do a restorative justice process, right? That can mean lots of different things, but we don't even think about that. We just, you know, it's easier to cancel and wag our fingers and judge people. I think somehow that's easier. It creates a distance between us and the other rather than recognizing that we are the other. And that is a harder, more vulnerable place to be and um, a more challenging place for us to exist. But in the end, I think it actually would make us happier and freer and more connected. The whole idea of cancel culture, like trying to remove someone's actual humanity to begin with, I think is just vile and hatred just steaming forth in this kind of normalized thing for whatever reason as to why it has been normalized it goes beyond my level of even comprehension like i I try and understand why we try and cancel why we try and silence speech why we try and 
cancel a person and, and ruin their, their life to begin with. They may have uh, made a mistake in the past. I know there are people out there that have done incredibly horrendous and, and vile acts, but at the end of the day, they are still a human being. You're going to look at them for being a human being. Uh, and obviously there are consequences involved with that person doing the wrong thing. I'm not saying that is uh, not going to happen, but Absolutely. people make those kind of choices. But I did want to ask you this question because you alluded alluded to it a little bit before. Uh, do you believe that people are inherently good? Uh, I do believe people are inherently born good. Um, I I think that, you know, um, we we are born into the world with curiosity. Uh, we're born into the world with kindness. We're born into the world with open hearts and open minds. And everything that happens from that moment on may actually turn us in a different direction. But um, I, I do think that's true. Like you, though, I just want to get back to your previous point, because I think it was a really important one, which is I also believe in accountability. People yeah. should be, of course, held accountable when they do harm to other people. There's no question about that or harm to the environment, right, or harm to an animal, just harm generally. But what accountability looks like doesn't have to look like destruction. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to look like cancellation. It doesn't have to look like harm and more violence, right? We have to shift our paradigm about what it means to hold somebody to account for what they've done, but in a way that there is repair and a way back, right? That's, and I, so I agree with you, people should be held accountable. I like, um, I forgot what country it actually is, but I like their approach to when someone actually commits a crime. I think there's a lot of rehabilitation that goes on. I, I can't actually remember, it's some uh, European country. It might be somewhere in Sweden, one of those. I think you're right that your you, Scandinavia tends yeah, to Scandinavia. be um, talked about as a place that has a much more restorative idea about what it means to be held accountable. Even when people are sent out of the community, the places that they're sent to don't look like our violent, traumatic, terrible jail cells, right, where people endure more harm and come out worse than they went in. It yeah. involves actually therapy and treatment and support and um, a more humane living environment so that when they re-enter society, they're better prepared to be productive members of society. What we do to people here in America by putting them in violent jails, right, is that we just create more instability, we create more harm, we create more violence. Um, and somehow, even though we've been doing this for decades and decades, we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. I hope that's changing. And I and I hope that we're beginning to see a new paradigm and a new way of thinking about this, um, because we really need to really think about, you know, how we support people who have um, been sent to jails and prisons, no matter what they look like, so that they can return. And people in America, I think, when they come out of the criminal justice system or they come out of jails and prisons and they go on to do sometimes incredible things. Mm -hmm. I have colleagues who have lived experience in the criminal justice system and in jails and prisons who are incredible leaders. They're inspiring, impactful, brilliant people. But they got to that place not because of the criminal justice system and what we did to them. They did it in spite of it. Um, and so I'd love to see more people be able to come out of the system. Um, I mean, obviously, I'd like to change the system entirely, but if it exists now, I'd like people to be able to come out with more support um, and, and having been enhanced um, rather than, you know, our destructive tendencies and vengeful tendencies, which we have. I have a friend of mine that I had on the show. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of him, Shaka Senghor. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he he wrote two incredible yep. books, and I mean, his story is living proof that you can rehabilitate, mm-hmm. and you can send people out into society that have actually done a wrong thing. I mean, it it's really interesting to me how people don't understand that you put someone in a, a violent position, violence will beget more violence. Yep, That's yep. just human nature. And Absolutely. If you put someone in a position where there isn't violence, the likelihood of them wanting to commit violence is significantly reduced. Oftentimes, it's like the whole nature versus nurture argument in that respect. A lot of us, I mean, we're not born violent. We are taught oftentimes. There's a lot of learning that goes on with that. There's also psychological aspects to human beings, which I find fascinating too, that contributes to them wanting to be violent as well. But a lot of it has to do with their environment, where they're placed and the experiences that they've been exposed to. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do we navigate that in society, trying to fix this kind of culture, which then stems into the criminal justice system? Does that (laughs) make sense? That's a huge, I mean, that is a huge problem. And I think, um, you know, we would have to really, really hold ourselves accountable for recognizing that we have disenfranchised and marginalized and under-resourced entire communities, uh, that people do not have access to healthcare and support and education and the things that we all should be entitled to just by virtue of being human beings. Um, but we have not provided that for everybody in our society, and you can see the results of that. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I was reminded of as a public defender every single day was the phrase that I hear from colleagues all the time in my field, which is that hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And so when people used to ask me, well, how can you defend so-and-so who's charged with this terrible crime? I always reflect on that every client that I ever got to know, the more I got to know them, um, the more obvious the connections between what they experienced growing up and through their lives led them to where they are. And the more horrendous the crime or the more horrendous the act, assuming that they were guilty of that, the more violent and horrendous I could find experiences that they had, right? There is a direct connection, as you said, between those things. And so we really need to think much, much sooner about, you know, from the minute that kids enter this world, how we're supporting families and parents and communities and schools and healthcare and mental health, um, and how we're enlivening communities so that people feel as if they have an equal stake in society, um, that they've been provided the supports they need to thrive, um, and to recognize that, you know, all of us um, have the potential to do incredibly wonderful things. Um, but when you literally cut off entire segments of the population um, and under-resource them, you're going to see the results um, in the long run. And I think we're beginning to grapple with that more and more, although what would seem to, you know, belie that is the sort of, you know, increasing income inequality. We like to talk about that all the time in this country. There's this, you know, increasing income inequality and what that's going to cause as well, right? Um, We need to just get better at recognizing that, you know, just because some people have something and you and other people get it doesn't it's not a zero sum gain right um mm-hmm. you know i think we we live in a world where we think well if they get something i'm going to lose something instead of well if they get something we're all going to gain something yeah this whole give and take kind of mentality and especially what are your thoughts on the whole social class system as, as a whole 
Yeah, well, like I said, you know, income inequality continues to grow in America and you see the disenfranchisement of so many people from thinking they even have a shot at the American dream and that that might be more of a myth than it was a reality. Although there are always the fantastic stories of people that make it through, right? And that's what gives people hope that it's going to be them. But the truth is there's systemic racism, there's systemic marginalization, there's enormous income inequality, um, and there's a lack of, you know, equal access to resources and support. And we need to really be addressing those things. Um, you know, in a perfect world, we could downsize our criminal justice system. Um, you know, we need to rethink how we define crime. We need to rethink how we use the criminal justice system. I always think about, you know, somehow we decided in America to use the criminal justice system to solve what are fundamentally social problems, problems of dire poverty, of uh, trauma, of trauma of mental health struggles, of substance use disorder, right? And rather than look at those as the public health issues that they really are fundamentally, we decided to use handcuffs and patrol cars and jail cells to quote unquote solve those problems. And of course, that's the last thing that's gonna solve a problem. Um, but it did take those problems and put them out of sight and cancel them out of our minds. Um, and we're seeing the results of that, right? We incarcerate more people in America than any other country in the world. Um, and we're not this. And if incarceration worked, we'd be the safest country on the planet. And we are not. So it's time to really reimagine what we're doing instead of keep doing the same thing over and over and over again um, as if it's going to work. I think a lot of what drives that, though, when I think about it is somehow it makes us feel safer mm -hmm. to remove people um, from society rather than actually look at it and ask ourselves, does that really make people safer? And the answer is no, not for people in jails and not for people out of jails. But when we're afraid and we're fearful, we'll just do unimaginable things to each other. And you see that everywhere in the world, right? If you scare people enough, they'll do unthinkable things to each other just to feel safe again, even if in the long run, it doesn't make you safer. Mm -hmm. The whole idea. And you're, we're battling that, like we're battling that fear. Yeah. Fear is an interesting thing. It, it gets people to do things that they may not have even thought about doing before in order to keep themselves protected. Kind of like the mm -hmm. fight or flight mentality, but instead they're choosing to fight in such a way that destroys society even more in Absolutely. many, many respects. Um, you mentioned something that I find very interesting. Um, this whole idea of systemic racism, I'm curious, what does that actually look like as being spending 40 years in the criminal justice system? Has that always been the case or is it, you think, changing at all? And, and what is actually involved with this idea of systemic racism? You know, if you look at some of the work that's been done, you know, by people like Brian Stevenson in the museum he has down um, at the Equal Justice Initiative, or you look at works like the new Jim Crow, you know, the line from slavery to mass incarceration in America is pretty clear. So systemic racism um, is in large measure a huge piece of what's going on with our criminal justice system. Um, you see it in every single phase of the criminal justice system, right? So you see it in policing decisions, you see it in sentencing, you see it in how cash bail gets set. If you are black or brown, you are more likely to have bail set at the beginning of your case than if you're your white counterpart and bail is likely to be higher, right? So you see it playing out in the bail context. You see it playing out in discipline in jails and prisons. You see it playing out in probation and parole. So it really infects every aspect of the criminal justice system. Um, that and that's not same. to say- Sorry. sorry, sorry to interrupt. Is that the yeah. same for, say, for example, a black person is actually uh, really rich? 
So certainly, so I would say racism plays out all the time, um, no matter what your bank account looks like. That said, if you are um, able to access financial resources, you are going to do better in the criminal justice system, right? So you're going to be able to hire the high-powered, high-priced lawyers who are going to fight your case, right? You're going to have the resources to do the things you need to do to protect yourself. Um, but at the very beginning of the system where either police or or the system, you know, was defining who's coming into the system, um, I think that that class is a big piece of that, that racism a much more dominant piece of that, um, at, which is why you see such racial disproportionality in our system. Um, but that said, of course, you're always better off if you have resources and you're wealthy. So kind of like there's, in my mind, I'm thinking there's like levels almost of racism that also is associated with the social class. Because if it sounds as like, you know, you've got someone that is obviously African-American or they're of a, a person of color but they're of high status in society. They've done the wrong thing. They're able to afford a high prosecutor, a high defender, actually, sorry, uh, to get them out. And obviously mm-hmm. money talks a lot more mm-hmm. nowadays mm-hmm. versus you've got someone that is obviously really, really poor. They are a person of color. They get thrown the book at them more often. And I'm I'm fairly certain that you would have seen this more or less because they're like, well, you're looking at someone that's got more money, they're contributing or they see them as contributing to, to society a little bit more. So we're going to let them go back on the street a lot quicker because that means they're going to be contributing to society a little bit more. There may be still racism involved in that to some degree versus someone that is just an absolute, you know, they're, they're poor, they're not really contributing much to society. I don't know. Does your mind go there at all? My brain's just thinking along those well, lines in a way. Certainly, yeah. Certainly because you're from a low-income community or a low-income person doesn't mean you're not contributing to society, right? You're probably contributing to your family, to your community in all sorts of ways, to your church groups, whatever the areas of contribution are that you're making. So I want to be clear about that. What I think though, and, and I can't speak for, you know, I can't speak for another group, but what I do know is if you have money, you are going, your case results are going to be better in the criminal justice system than if you don't. For yep. one, you're going to be able to pay your cash bail up front and be free while you fight your case, which gives you a huge advantage. So whether you are white or black or, you know, from any other community, if you can pay your cash bail up front, you're going to have a better case disposition. That said, if you are black and living in America or brown and living in America and from a marginalized community, you are going to experience racism in all sorts of ways every day in all sorts of aspects of your life, unfortunately. But if you enter the criminal justice system, will your case wind up being better if you have resources? Probably. Sure. Um, Like I said, the most important marker will be whether you can pay your cash bail to get out. Uh, which makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in terms of what your case dispositions look like, whether you have to go back to jail to serve a sentence, whether you can work in partnership with your lawyers to create a defense, whether you can find witnesses on your own behalf. I mean, everything will go better for you if you can get out at the very beginning. So regardless of race, if you have the money to pay your way out for your freedom at the very beginning of the case when cash bail gets set, your case dispositions are going to wind up being better. It doesn't necessarily seem very fair to me in in many respects. I mean, like, because you got someone that's got obviously a lot more money than, or they've got a lot of opportunity to earn a great deal of money, let's say, versus someone that 
might not have had the same level of opportunity. They've been trying, they're still contributing to society, but therefore they're, they're stuck. They can't pay that amount that has been set for them. It's not mm-hmm. to say that they could never pay it, but they've been, their life experiences have probably not amounted to that of someone that has earned a great deal of money and committed probably the same crime. I mean, the crime is still the same, but the mm-hmm. person's situation is different. So how do we well, deal with yeah. that? <laughs> so it's really interesting about our America's cash bail system, right? Is that it was actually created because the theory was if you set bail in an amount of that somebody can pay, it provides an incentive for them to come back to court. And intuitively, I think that theory might make some sense, right? Okay, so you have skin in the game. And the reason is, by the way, because at the end of your criminal case, no matter how it resolves itself, you get your money back as long as you make your court appearances. So the idea was it was a release mechanism, right? And the theory was a theory. Um, The problem is over years, judges began to set bail in higher and higher amounts. And so low-income Americans couldn't pay the bail amounts. And Mm -hmm. so they wound up sitting in jails um, before conviction, right? Not serving sentences before any evidence has been brought into a courtroom. They wound up sitting in jail sometimes for months or years simply because they couldn't pay the amount of cash bail that a judge set. And high income people could pay that bail so they could get out and have better case dispositions. That turned the whole presumption of innocence on its head, um, you know, because once you're held in jail on cash bail because you can't pay it. And remember, most Americans can't don't have $400 in their savings account for an emergency. Right. So you're talking about asking people to choose between feeding their children and paying their bail or paying their rent and paying their bail. Um, But, you know, what we know is if you're held in on cash bail, you are much more likely to plead guilty to a crime, whether you did it or not, whether your Mm. lawyer even advises you or not, because it's the only way to get home. And if you can fight your case from the outside, you're much less likely to wind up going back to jail or with a conviction. So it turns the presumption of innocence on its head. It corrodes sort of the entire leverage in the criminal justice system to prioritize sort of um, the prosecution and, and government because you're stuck in a jail cell and you just want to go home. And I think what most Americans don't know is that, you know, we have 3,000 local jails in this country. The majority of people in those jails have not been convicted of anything yet. They are not there because they're serving sentences and they've been convicted. They're there because they can't pay their cash bail. They're Mm -hmm. there because at the very beginning, before any evidence was brought forward and we were able to test it to determine if they were innocent or guilty, they couldn't pay for their freedom. That's the problem with the cash bail system. So we need to take money out of the system. You need to eliminate cash bail and reimagine what a pretrial justice system would look like where the decision about who should stay in and who should go home is made not on the basis of how much money you have, but is made on other sort of objective, transparent criteria that should really be vetted in a courtroom, um, you know, in a very clear way with procedural safeguards for the accused. Um, And then I think if we did that, what you would find is that the majority of people could go home and be returned to the community safely. And the system would allow for the smaller number of people who may not be able to be returned to their communities safely would have to stay in jail pretrial without bail. But cash has never been a proxy for safety. It has nothing to do with safety. And what we know from five years of running the bail project and doing 30,000 bailouts, our clients come back to 92% of their court dates, even though they have not put up their own money for bail. So we know it's a myth that money is what makes people come back to court. All money does is create a two-tier system of justice, one for people with 
resources and one for people without. So we need to really change the American cash bail system. It's also the driver of mass incarceration. It's a driver of racial disparities. And it is 99% responsible for jail growth in America over the past 25 years. And it's also largely contributing to corruption because more money someone makes, it's like a revolving door like of so many people coming in and out. And obviously if they have a rich person that comes in, they're like, okay, we're going to set you a bail at this amount because we know you can pay it. And we know probably you're going to return back anyway, but for people that are a lower, say, income, they'll set the bail extremely high, like it's almost unachievable, and then they won't be able to pay it and they rot in jail for a long period of time. I mean, yeah. you mentioned in the very beginning, like all things, we need to make it equal and all things being fair. Well, that's mm-hmm. not equal and it's not fair in my eyes, that is. So if you remove... Yeah money out of the equation. And I know people are going to go, well, Jay, it's not, it's not the the rich person's fault at all that he's got more money than say someone that in that whole argument, we can go down a massive rabbit hole with that too. But crime is still a crime. You know, you've got to look at it for what it really is. And removing money out of the equation there and saying, look, if you want to create an equal society, have it across the board. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, Yeah, no. And look, you know, when they set bail at the beginning of a case, we don't even know if the person's committed a crime or not. I yeah, mean, what we know yeah, from our- Proven guilty. Right. And what we know from our data at the bail project over five years is when we pay cash bail with donated dollars, one out of three people have their cases dismissed entirely once they're bailed out, which means they shouldn't have been there at the beginning. That's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. That is a lot of people that are in this system who never should have been there and never should have been arrested or the evidence doesn't exist to prove them guilty. Um, and But if we would never know that because people are being held in jail and they plead guilty so they can go home because that's the fastest way to get to safety. A big question that I know we could probably spend hours on is how do we fix the crime level in America or even in society? Well, the first thing we have to do is look at ourselves in the mirror and recognize that what we've been doing hasn't worked, right? And so we need to say that out loud. Um, And, you know, I like to say in our own personal lives, that's a good lesson. It's certainly a good lesson um, for all of us, which is this isn't working. And so what did we get wrong here? And I think you need to fundamentally, as I referred to before, look at the things we're bringing people into the system for and recognize that there's a huge amount of the system involvement that is just about public health matters, right? Matters of mental health, right? Staggering levels of mental health challenges, substance use disorder, right? That's never going to be solved in the criminal justice system. Those issues need to be solved in a, through a public health lens of what do we need to support somebody with mental health challenges? What do we need to support somebody with substance use disorder, right? What do we do to address the issues of real poverty where people um, might be committing crimes because they have no alternative, right? They didn't have any choices at the moment. You know, we need to think about that. We need to think about trauma and the role that past trauma plays in creating current crime, Right. We need to look at the destabilizing impacts of COVID-19 and recognize that none of us are well. The world is not very well right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the upticks that we see in crime in different places and some of the violence you see um, has been brought about by one of the most destabilizing events in our history, where over a million people just in America alone died from COVID-19, destabilizing families and communities, shutting down resources that people had, um, you know, really creating all sorts of new trauma. And- And 
really can't ignore the fact that we sold more guns in America in the past three years than we have in our entire history. And so we need to be looking at all those things and really, you know, facing it head on and just saying, like, do we really think any of these problems are going to be solved with the criminal justice system and police cars? Or do we think we need to have an entirely different paradigm? There are people doing incredible work out there, um, I think, around this sort of notion of restorative justice and what that means, which honors both the humanity of the person who might have caused harm and it honors the humanity of the person who might have experienced harm. Right. It provides a paradigm for those people to come together, to hear each other out, to hear what were the experiences that brought this person to this place where they caused harm? And what did that harm do to this other person so there is mutual respect and understanding? That's not going to work in every situation, but it certainly is a paradigm worth talking about. I think we need to be talking about what do conditions of confinement look like? Um, I mean, I think we could downsize the system to a fraction of what it is. But even when you think that you have to hold somebody in confinement because they can't be returned safely to their community, what does that look like? How do we support them? How do we make sure that their past trauma is being addressed, that they're receiving therapy and treatment, that they're getting job, you know, vocational training that so when they come out, they come out ready, right, to be vibrant, productive members of the society. We have a lot of work to do, um, mm. but, you know, we can do it. It's just a matter of looking at ourselves square in the face, I think, and acknowledging that what we've done hasn't worked and being willing to try new things. Um, there's there's always a risk when we're talking about criminal justice. And I think that drives a lot of our criminal justice policy. It's as if, you know, the normal risk that we think about in our lives every day we calculate risk, right? That's part of being human, right? You get in a car and you think, I could have a car accident, but the odds are against it. I get on a plane, the odds are I'm going to get to my destination safely. When we're talking about criminal justice and how we legislate around criminal justice, for some reason, I think it's wrapped up in fear. Again, we legislate around the exception. Mm. So an example is, you know, somebody gets out on parole after they've served their sentence, right? And they commit a terrible crime. And it hits the front page of every newspaper in America. And everybody starts screaming and pointing fingers and he shouldn't have been out on parole and we shouldn't let people out on parole and nobody should be out on parole. And the next thing you know, right, local elected officials are passing legislation to you know, deny people parole. The parole boards are afraid to let people out. Statewide legislation is passing to change the parole system. And we end parole because the story you never saw side by side was, 100,000 people got released on parole last year and went back to their communities and families and did well and thrived and created loving lives, right? What you see is the one scary, horrible story that drives sort of the policy. And for criminal justice, it's like the exception drives the policy. It's always been a mystery to me um, until I started really writing this book and thinking about what is that? And it's just fear. It's just fear. It's just being unwilling to take a breath after you've read an article like that, or you've seen it on the front page of the newspaper or a local news station ran the story and ask yourself, is this what usually happens or is this the rare occurrence? Do I change my entire life because of what a rare occurrence or do we really live our lives around what usually happens? That doesn't mean we don't look at the situation, try to figure out how we could have done better. It's not that it's not heartbreaking. It's not that it doesn't cause harm, but it shouldn't drive policy. Um, and I think in criminal justice, the exception is what drives policy all too often. And that exception is just never, almost never based in data. It's almost never based in the evidence. It's almost never based in 
in sort of thoughtful approaches to problems, it's almost always a reaction to something. And mm -hmm. we have to get a handle on that, right? As humans, we need to get a handle on our fears. The only antidote to fear is curiosity. I am convinced of that. It is the only antidote we have. It's the only tool we have. Because as you said much earlier in this talk, you know, we have a fight or flight instinct. And, and that is an instinct that we have. And it saved us back in the old days, right? But we're able to evolve beyond that. Um, that's what makes us human. And we're able to sort of ask ourselves, is this fear real? And when it's real, I'm not suggesting somebody should be put in harm's way. But if it's not real, let's interrogate what's really going on. Right. Let's look at the data. Let's look at the evidence. Let's ask ourselves, is my fear rational or irrational? Because nothing um, is worse than making decisions based on fear. And we really need to take responsibility for that and get curious. Right. Just that's the antidote to fear. And when we get curious, that's how we find our way to compassion. And when we have compassion, that's how we find our way to connection. And when we feel that connection, that's how we feel compelled to act on other people's behalf. There's a lot that you said there that we can yeah. sort of dive into. I'm glad that you said all of that. Firstly, I agree with you. America and even Australia has a massive mental health crisis that's going on. People are definitely sick. And I think more needs to be done except having this sort of quick fix so throw them in in jail, say you, you you can rot there, you've done the wrong thing, that's going to be your your consequence and just leaving it as that. And then you're also right about how no one really hears about the thousands of other people that are released on the bail system and they're actually doing the right thing. You only hear about the one, for example. And then also this whole idea of looking at curiosity and creativity and I really believe that what makes us human in the first place is having the level of curiosity and creativity to go through life, to be able to ask questions, to be compassionate to other people, to be kind. But unfortunately, there is an, an evil world out there that you've got to combat with. And it, it looks as if like evil is now good and good is now evil in my eyes in many respects. And trying to navigate that kind of world with compassion, it's difficult. <laughs> I don't know if you feel the same way, but it is very, very difficult. It is very difficult. Compa look, compassion, you know, people think about compassion as being soft, right? It's a soft, easy. It is the hardest thing to do. Um, I fail at it every day, right? <laughs> so people are like, well, are you an expert in compassion? I'm like, no, of course not. It's, it's a challenge I think about every single day, whether somebody, you know, cuts in front of me online. And the first thing I want to do is label them something. Um, and I have to ask myself, you know, what's going on there? Maybe they were in a rush. Maybe they have a reason they need to get in front of me, right? Like just, just have a little bit of open-mindedness about what might've been going on with that person rather than judge them and demean them and, and call them names, right? And label them. So compassion is hard. I think we're all capable of it. Um, I think it's it's something we need to develop. And with all of the talk about mindfulness and intentionality and yoga and all the things that I think are really healthy things that have sprung up over the past bunch of years, right? Compassion should be right there with that kind of intentionality and mindfulness, right? It should be, how do I develop this tool of compassion? And the only way you develop it is with curiosity. And how do I use it every day in my everyday life with people that I know, with people that I don't know more importantly, and with people that I just like to talk about out there, the other, right? Um, and I and I think it's a, 
it's a, a skill that can be learned, but you're right, it's a challenge. And the book in some ways is really a challenge to the reader, right? To challenge themselves, right? To think about how they might develop compassion. Um, and compassion is not pity, right? And it's not feeling sorry for somebody and it's not not holding somebody accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not even mercy. Compassion is the willingness to travel alongside somebody to try to understand their pain and their experiences, which is an act of imagination because you can't really feel somebody else's experience, but you can use your imagination to understand what that might feel like to bring you just a little bit closer and a little bit more connected. Hence why you've got the courage. So courage is no easy, easy thing to actually uphold and neither bravery either, but it it is a journey of of the life that we are living in currently and we should do our very, very best. I mean, it's okay to fail. I mean, that (laughs) makes us human as well, but it's all about trying to bring ourselves back to that reality of, yes, you failed, but have a little bit of compassion, have a little bit of empathy, forgive yourself. Now let's move on to bigger and better things in life. And also with the mindfulness, using that term that is thrown out, a lot today, uh, no doubt. <laughs> Trying to be more mindful of who you are as a person, but how other people may be feeling as well. That is also exempl- exemplary. Yeah, I'm probably... Uh, exemplary, I think. Yeah, exemplary, there we go. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, some words don't roll off my tongue very well. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> You're just human and we make mistakes and we have flaws just yeah. like the rest of us, right? That's the, that's the lesson here. But I, you make such a good point about showing yourself compassion when you fall down or you fail or you do something you're ashamed of or you do something that hurts somebody. Showing yourself that compassion, right, is a beginning also and then sharing that compassion with others so that you can do the same. Your book is called The Courage of Compassion, A Journey from Judgment to Connection. People can get it now wherever books are sold. I'll link it in the show notes below for people. Uh, Robin, this has been a very insightful conversation and I've really, really enjoyed it. And I wanted to sort of finish on a very controversial note, if that's okay with you. (laughs) I don't know. We'll see. I want to get your (laughs) thoughts on... There is this thing at the moment happening in America, in New York, with the whole Jordan Neely debacle that's been going on. And I wanted to get your perspective as a public defender. What what are your views on, on the entire situation, if you don't mind sharing? That is a very big question. It's funny that you asked that question because... Um, My family and I sat down to dinner last night and my husband and I were sitting with three of our kids and we had just a rollicking conversation about this and uh, a debate about this. And I would have loved um, to be a fly on the wall for that. Yeah. I mean, look, (laughs) you know, there's so much to unpack in that situation. And um, I think it's a very hard conversation to have for people. And I think it's also very early in understanding what happened and why it happened. And none of us were in that car and none of us can actually see what happened. But you can't look at that situation and not think about the roles that mental health played in that situation erupting. You can't think about the role that race may or may not have played in that situation. You can't help, but I can't help but feel sadness and compassion um, for the young man who died. And I can't help but feel sadness and compassion for the young man who's going to be charged with uh, his death. And, you know, nobody should have had to die under those circumstances. But I think the question that we're also now left with, and this is a really good example of that, is 
how do we think about what justice looks like here? Yeah. And maybe this is a moment where we can really think about a paradigm that looks different than just pointing fingers, wagging fingers, making judgments, punishing um, and and canceling and really thinking about what could a more restorative justice result look like here. We can't bring back the young man who died. Of course not. And his family will have to live with that loss forever. Um, and the young man who's been charged is going to have to live with that as well for the rest of his life. But I look at it in some ways as an opportunity for us to really think about a different paradigm for figuring out what justice might look like here that looks different um, than I think our normal response to things, which is so deeply punitive and vengeful. Um, and of course, there are broken hearts everywhere here and nobody ever feels good about this situation. Um, I think it's really important that we try not to like divide ourselves into ideological camps. Um, yes. This is a complicated, complex, difficult situation um, where, you know, two families are going to suffer in entirely different ways, um, but that we need to be aware of that and we need to really lead with as much curiosity as we can, as much compassion as we can um, to really find out what would justice look like in this situation where you can't bring back somebody. Um, and how might we actually use this moment to have more thoughtful conversations um, about how we are thinking about criminal justice, how we think about punishment, how we think about mental health, um, how we think about race, how we think about each other, um, and how we think about what happened in that subway car as an example of, um, you know, in some ways, some people getting involved and other people not getting involved and how that might have played out differently. And it's really easy to sit back and to look backwards and to point fingers and to judge. And it's really hard, I think, in the moment um, to think about how might we have acted in that situation and to hold ourselves accountable for thinking about that in the future, how might we might have intervened to ensure that somebody didn't die in that situation. Um, but I think, you know, this is going to be a long conversation for a long time. And I hope that we can do it with thoughtfulness and courage and care and a commitment to justice um, both for the young man who lost his life and for the young man who's going to be charged. It's just a very tragic set of circumstances and entirely a huge event that completely just blew up. Um, and unfortunately, someone lost their life in the, in the entire mix, but it does raise a lot of other questions. And the reason why I asked you is because of the area of justice and how it's now going to be perceived because going back to the very beginning of the conversation, is it like one person is going to be pleased with it? The other person may not be. So how do we navigate that whole situation? But you're right. It is going to be a conversation for a very long time. Um, but I, for but one, what would be, what would be really great is if we weren't screaming at each other about it. And what would oh, be yes. really great if we weren't labeling each other and dehumanizing each other on either side. And we're actually trying to have a conversation that recognize the humanity in both people involved in this situation. Um, and like I said, that's not an equivalency if somebody lost their life and somebody obviously caused that to happen. But can we have these conversations in a more thoughtful, compassionate way with each other so that we can arrive at something that feels more like justice and less just like 
revenge and political ideology and pointing fingers and screaming. And that's not to say that people don't have a right to feel hurt and outraged or angry or shamed or whatever it is they feel, but we need to get better at having these conversations um, in a way that aren't um, so destructive for everybody involved. You get two screaming people in, in the room on opposite ends. No ground is going to be made at all. <laughs> You're not yeah. going to find common ground in that. In well, that and in this situation, nobody should be dehumanized and demonized for mental health struggles or for being unhoused. And nobody should be dehumanized, you know, because they're charged with the crime either. Right. It's it it is, you know, very, very hard to maintain our um compassion and rationality and thoughtfulness around this, but I'm hoping that this may be an opportunity to do that. Well, I for one am grateful for you, Robin, and your work. And I just want to say thank you so much for your time with me today. I've very much enjoyed this conversation, but I, I again, thank you for your book. Thank you for your work. And thank you for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation and thank you for inviting me on. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.